Hi, Yuri Lepstein here from RDI with the fourth episode of our Winter is Here podcast, where we discuss not only how we arrived at this battle between tyranny and democracy, but perhaps more importantly, how we can win. Now with me today, I have two guests who have incredible expertise, not only on Russia or China, but on dictatorship writ large. Olga Lautman is a senior fellow for the Center of European Policy Analysis and a co-host of the Kremlin File podcast. Edward Lucas is a non-resident senior fellow, also at the Center for European Policy Analysis, and he was a se- formerly a senior editor at The Economist and is currently running for parliament in the constituency of London and Westminster as a liberal Democrat. He has published four books, including The New Cold War, Deception, The Snowden Operation, and Cyberphobia. Thank you both for joining us today. It's great to be on the show. Thank you. So let's begin with how we got here. In a couple of our previous episodes, we talked somewhat more narrowly about how this war in Ukraine began, and we talked about the rise of Putin. But what I'd like to do now is take us a little bit further back. So the Soviet Union falls in 91, and there's this incredible sense of happiness and hope and euphoria. And of course, just 30 years later, we're now looking at a Russia which is in every way just as repressive as significant parts of the Soviet Union were. So, Edward, how did we get here? I think the answer lies in your use of the words euphoria and hope, that we were so blinded by our delight when the Soviet Union collapsed that we didn't look too closely about the way it collapsed, what happened to the KGB and Communist Party funds, which actually were the seed money for the regime that came next. We also didn't look at the way in which the KGB had not been abolished. This wasn't like Germany in 1945, where the Gestapo was completely removed from public life. No, the old KGB carried on. We also didn't really appreciate the way in which many Russians, although they agreed the planned economy had been a failure and that the one-party communist system didn't work, were still very nostalgic for what they saw as the geopolitical glory that the Soviet Union had brought. And this view was exemplified by Vladimir Putin, who said that the collapse of the Soviet Union had been the geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. You can't imagine a German saying that about the Third Reich. And that really set the stage. What happened next? That there was the Karaganov doctrine, the idea that Russia has the right and indeed the duty to interfere in neighboring countries on behalf of a loosely defined category of people called Russian speakers, which in fact would include me and Olya. We would not want anyone to intervene on our behalf. And it means that Russia, even when it was the fundamentally, you know, supposedly benign Yeltsin, era. Russia even then had a problem with history and a problem with geography, a problem with history that it doesn't understand the crimes and lies of the Soviet Union and their full magnitude. And geography, it doesn't really believe its neighbors are properly independent countries with all the rights to sovereignty and security that go with that. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the euphoria that we felt at the end of the Soviet Union was very much premature, that it wasn't justified. If we try to imagine an alternative world, what could have happened in the 90s that might have led Russia down a different path? One can spend all day with might have beens. I think we should be much clearer that we were not going to tolerate undemocratic behavior 
by the supposed Democrats. I think we should have said very clearly at the beginning that our main priority is not the former colonial power, it's the former colonies, and we're going to do a lot to help Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, countries in Central Europe, Ukraine, Moldova, and the others, and that we're not going to try and micromanage Russian economic and political reforms. I would have been in favor of being generous and friendly. But the idea that we were sort of backing Yeltsin against Zyuganov because that was somehow going to make Russia into a more friendly country, I think was incredibly arrogant and misconceived. Olga, what do you think? Well, I absolutely agree with everything that Edward said. I would add that Russia had a very small window of opportunity to go towards democracy. And I think it's the greed and corruption of Westerners who came into Russia with these deals of being run by basically, at the time, rising oligarchs, and it was mafia and Russian intelligence working together to gain these industries. And I think that has a lot to do with it because you saw so many Western businessmen who ran into Russia assisting mafia, assisting Russian intelligence, doing oil deals in the basement of an Orthodox church. So this is kind of how now we see how that the corruption and greed, where it led to. And unfortunately, it had to take Ukrainian blood being spilled so publicly through social media videos and media for finally the corruption and the faucet to be shut off or at least begin to be shut off because we still see hesitation in fully trying to stop the flow of Putin's money. Well, I think this is such an important point about the role that the free world played in Russia becoming this authoritarian hellscape under Putin. You mentioned that the faucet now is finally starting to get shut off after we had this just unbelievable, well, unfortunately, perhaps for those of us on this call right now, believable, but for far too many people, unbelievable war of aggression in Ukraine. But nevertheless, that faucet is not completely off. Right. I mean, you have countless oligarchs who have been able to escape sanctions through irrevocable trusts, through financial intermediaries, through alternative financial arrangements. So I wonder if you could give us a sense of what is the status of that kind of Western faucet of financial support for the Putin regime and what more could be done to limit its flow? Well, I think first and foremost, the oil and gas business needs to be shut down completely. Europe needs to stop buying it from Russia because this is what supports Putin's regime. And we still have countries like Germany who are buying energy. And this is funding basically the war crimes that Putin is committing in Ukraine. Because right now, if they were to cut the energy deals off, for starters, that would right now, domestically, the economy is very pressured. Putin wouldn't have the length of time he needs to complete his objectives inside of Ukraine because he'll run out of money. He can't continue to run a war when there's no money flow coming in. But I just saw recently on Twitter, I like passed through it, that there was just like billions of dollars deposited into Russia of payment made. And I mean, this is money that is being used to fund Putin, in my view, committing genocide, war crimes at a minimum, genocide on a bigger scale 
inside of Ukraine. And I think that's what has to be done. And then as far as we have to get more countries on board, because why is Abramovich docking his yacht in Turkey, who is a NATO member? Really, I mean, if we want to clamp down, first of all, this is more than I ever thought I'd see in my lifetime. I don't know about you, Edward, but for me, I never even thought we'd see half of what is happening right now. So we're moving in the right direction. And finally, people do realize there's a problem and there's no in-between because countries were so scared to actually have a clear foreign policy of naming Russia an adversary who is attacking our democracies. I mean, Russia has been attacking every single country in Europe, in U.S., Canada, running disinformation and division campaigns, and yet not one country had a clear policy of saying Russia is an adversary. Unlike with the Cold War, we knew the Soviet Union was the enemy. So I want to hop on the energy point here. So you pointed out the danger of Europe's energy reliance on Russia. Now, you, of course, have Germany, which gets, I think, about 37% of its oil from Russia. And of course, Germany has been, shall we say, very hesitant to turn off that spigot. Meanwhile, the UK has, of course, been willing to do so. But the key difference here is, of course, the UK only received 8% of its total demand from Russia. And so, Edward, as someone who's on the other side of the pond, What do you think are the prospects of European energy? Is there a chance of Europe weaning itself off from Russia? What would it take for that to happen? I think that the infuriating thing about this is that if we'd started 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, this wouldn't be a problem. We've created an enormously difficult, costly, risky dilemma for us where we either are feeding Putin's war machine or we're taking some big hits to the welfare of the voters who don't like being cold and don't like being jobless, and to our economic prosperity, particularly in Germany. Now, we can do it. I lived in the Baltic states in the winters of 1990 to 91, 91 to 92, and we didn't have heating, and we lived indoors with our ski clothes on and boiled kettles and walked everywhere because there wasn't much petrol. So, you can do this. And if anyone complains about it, I'd ask them if they'd rather live in Mariupol. They're not sure live is the right word for what's going on there. But we're not used to this sort of economic sacrifice. And it's unnecessary. If we had built big electricity interconnectors to Iceland and Norway, we would have many gigawatts of capacity, terawatts even, basically free renewable energy from geothermal and hydroelectric power in Iceland. We could have started building more nuclear power stations. We could have done, got serious about energy conservation. Germany didn't need to close down its nuclear power stations. The, this is, and I, to echo what Olga was saying earlier, Russia doesn't win because Russia's strong. Russia wins because we're weak. And the odd thing is we're not actually weak in terms of means. We're bigger than Russia. We're stronger than Russia. We have a bigger GDP than Russia. No, we are weak in terms of being weak-willed. That's where Putin gets ahead of us. He's decisive. He's willing to take risks and pay prices and get stuff done. And we're not. And again and again, since the 1990s, we've always chosen the easy option rather than the hard one. And the result is we're now in a position where we have only hard choices ahead of us. Well, speaking of those hard choices, obviously, had Europe been able to make this shift starting 15 years ago, or had Germany not decommissioned its nuclear power, we'd be in a very different position. And unfortunately, we're not. But given where we are today, Edward, what do you think is realistic? 
Do you think it's realistic for elected leaders in the UK or Germany, especially Germany, to ask their citizens to go through those kind of privations? Or are there other things that the EU could do on the energy front to put the screws to Russia? I would start on the military front, actually. I think that this is fundamentally a military conflict, and it's being fought with high-explosive high-tech weapons, and we should make sure that Ukraine has got the weapons it needs to win. And that should be our objective. I think we have to be really clear about this. And Anne Applebaum wrote it brilliantly in the Atlantic a couple of days ago. We're not looking for partition. We're not looking for some kind of crippled Ukraine with a Russian gun at its head for the next decades. No, we want Ukraine to win. We want a viable Ukrainian state at the end of this that can defend itself in future. And ideally, we want Russia to be militarily defeated in a way that rocks the Putin regime to its foundations and maybe even topples it. That's our goal. And we should make it clear to Russia that we're willing to do what is necessary to pursue that goal. And I think that there's a tendency that we always look for the soft option and think, well, you know, if we could just buy a bit less gas from Russia, then you know, Putin will come under such pressure that he won't be mean to us anymore. And that's the wrong way of looking at it. We should do the hard, difficult things that really scare Putin. And he's shown that he's willing to take enormous economic hits. We confiscated most of his central bank reserves. He barely blinked didn't inflict any damage on him. So I think that we've got to do the tough stuff rather than the easy stuff. Among the other tough stuff, I would like to get really down and dirty with mind games, proper psyops. I think we should be really messing with the Russian command structure and the different interactions that Russians and Russian decision makers have with each other to confuse them, spread fear, uncertainty, and doubt. There's masses more we could do on the cyber front. I would say to Apple, Microsoft, an Android, turn every device in Russia that runs your software into a brick and do it by this evening. That would have an impact. Let them enjoy their Xiaomi Chinese phones and running their computers on Linux software or whatever they've got left over from the Soviet Union. That's stuff we could do. I'd be in favor of going for sweeping visa sanctions. The top 10,000 people in Russia are all banned from traveling to the civilized world in future, not any of them, their spouses, their siblings, their children, their parents, and their in-laws. None of them can come to the West anymore. And the only way out of that is they have to resign. That would have an impact. So I think we should be aiming to deliver a series of devastating, crippling blows to the Kremlin on all fronts over the next few days before any more people die. Olga, what's your take on this? I absolutely agree because, look, first of all, we have no option, just like Ukrainians have no option but to make sure they win because this is the existential threat to them. We have no option but to make sure Ukraine wins because if Putin somehow takes Ukraine, I mean, we will see NATO dragged in so quick and Putin won't stop with Ukraine. He already took Belarus last year over the past several years and softly annexed it. God knows from the Russian propaganda, they want the Baltics. They keep talking about Poland. They talk about Moldova. So we need to stop him in Ukraine. And we cannot let him succeed in Ukraine. And we cannot definitely, we should, which is a fear of mine, we should not force Ukraine even to give one inch back. If anything, Crimea and eastern Ukraine, Donbass and Luhansk need to go back to Ukraine. Because right now, not only is this the future of what happens with Russia, but it's also the future of what happens with China. If China sees us blink, we're going to have more problems down the line. And we have to show that when we 
believe in something, sovereignty of a country, that we will do everything to make sure that country remains sovereign and support them with all means we can. So both of you have expressed what amounts to a very strong position on what Russia is doing and asking for very significant investment in terms of military, in terms of economics, from the free world in order to defend a fellow democracy in the form of Ukraine. Now, there are many people, certainly we've seen them on Twitter, we've seen them in the media, etc., who would call this position essentially asking for World War III. That's a position that I've heard frequently articulated. And I think Ann Applebaum had a pretty strong response to it, actually, in one social media exchange. I believe it was with Tom Nichols, where she pointed out that whether we offer a strong response or we don't, either way, we're rolling the dice because we don't know what Putin's going to do. We don't know if he's going to continue to escalate. In other words, he is just as likely to escalate if he senses weakness as he is if he senses strength. Is that your sense of this position? In other words, one, are you afraid of what might happen? In other words, if we take these measures that you're calling for, is there a sense that those measures could take us down a road that we might not necessarily want to go down? Or do you believe that the threat to ultimately be great if we actually don't take those measures? I think that the risks of inaction are much greater than the risks of action. And at every stage since the early 90s, we've always chosen the easy option. And the result is that things have got worse. And we now face, we have no good choices. It will be extremely dangerous and risky. And I do not at all exclude that Putin will use chemical weapons against Ukrainians. We've certainly seen what happened in Syria. And I don't exclude that he will use a nuclear weapon, probably not to attack NATO, but he will certainly try and scare us, because he knows that in the thinking, particularly of the Biden administration, but also in swathes of kind of quasi-pacifist Europe, people think that escalation is the worst thing that can happen. And the absolute priority is to avoid anyone detonating a nuclear weapon anywhere. And that puts Putin in a very strong position, because he knows that he has lots of nuclear weapons, including ones with very low yields, far smaller than the Hiroshima bomb, which is so etched in our memory. He could detonate a nuclear depth charge, some remote corner of the world. It wouldn't necessarily have to lead to any human lives being lost. And it would absolutely terrify us. And we would then be in probably, you'd see Western leaders trying to arm twist the Ukrainians saying, give Putin whatever he wants. Otherwise, he'll nuke us again. And that's the situation we've created. We've created this over the last 25 years through a mixture of ignorance, arrogance, complacency, greed, and timidity. And now we have to live with the consequences. There are no good options. They're all horrible. I agree. One of the things, Edward, that you said earlier that strikes me as something that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about is the opportunity for the free world to engage in psyops. That kind of information warfare is something we get a lot from Russia. And that's something they're incredibly experienced with. Olga, I know that you follow rather closely all of the disinformation coming out of Russia. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what the options are for the West to engage in this kind of psyops and cyber war and whether this might not be a pretty significant complement or even an alternative to kinetic physical warfare. Well, I think the psyops part, I absolutely agree because Russia for too long, and I just never understood why, for too long has been winning the information war and they are experts at it. 
But we, for some reason, just kind of gave up and never fought back. And it was interesting because Russia has always dictated the narrative. They've always controlled which direction they want us to go into. Just like when they were preparing this invasion into Ukraine, they suddenly concocted this newfound fear of NATO. And that's where all the media went. And you had all the policy writers writing articles about NATO, like having all these discussions about NATO where This is absolutely what we should not have been focused on. We should have been focused on the 200,000 troops amassing on Ukraine's border. So where finally we threw Russia off of their kind of game and off of balance was when U.S. and British intelligence started releasing intelligence on everything that Russia was going to do. So whatever intelligence, whereas historically we see intelligence agencies collecting this intelligence, processing it, and then briefing the lawmakers. Here, we actually saw the lawmakers delivering it to the public, the transparency. And that, on the Russian side, I can tell you, Russia was put into a defense posture. And our Pentagon said, oh, Russia's preparing false flag operations in Ukraine in order to uh, have a pretext for invasion. Now, instead of Russia creating the narrative, they were defending that they're not preparing any pretext. So I do think going forward, and I do see some psyops being played because I see a lot of chatter and it's very interesting in Russian social media channels about this distrust between Gerasimov and Shoigu or Gerasimov got fired or Shoigu is about to perform a coup and Putin is going to fire him. And you see all kind of this like seeds of doubt being planted. And I mean, it's fascinating to watch from that aspect. And I think that it should be done more and it should also be done with addressing the Russian people, because I have to say it was interesting seeing V-Contact, Russia's biggest social media network, hacked over the weekend, clearly not by a Russian speaker, but someone in Russian wrote the casualties to the Russian military, what was happening on the ground in Ukraine, the civilian structures, and this post got delivered to over 12 million users on V-Contact. And then we also saw a similar with a Russian newspaper that also suddenly published the real numbers of how many losses Russia was taking inside of Ukraine and the weapons that were lost. And then that article went offline and they said they were hacked. But I think we need to have a combination of psyops and cyber in order to get the message in to cause this distrust among the leaders because right now Putin is extremely paranoid. I mean, I read that he's having now his latest meetings on Zoom, like he doesn't even want to sit with his military officials in person. So we need to keep feeding that distrust. And at the same time, as the military, his military strategies fail, because clearly this is not how he envisioned what's happening in Ukraine, how it would go. We're also seeing arrest of senior leaders inside of Russia and the FSB fifth directorate allegedly was put under house arrest. So we need to feed Putin's paranoia and make sure that it makes everyone around him and including the state Duma members paranoid themselves that at any moment Putin's system can throw them into jail.
So in other words, we need to see this kind of information warfare as a significant and legitimate component of our ability to deter and affect Russian decision-making. Now, one of the things that I've also found to be very challenging to think about is sort of this distinction between the Russian people and the Russian government. I mentioned in last week's episode with Jay Nordlinger that an old childhood friend of mine from Russia had reached out to me, actually, and he talked about how terrible things had become, essentially, and how they had been personally affected by these sanctions and all of that. But then he also said something very interesting, which was that he and his family felt that basically prior to February 24th, things were kind of okay which of course is a pretty scary thing to think about because prior to February 24th, things in Russia were pretty far from okay. And so it took this level of crisis, this level of conflict, and this level of sanctions in order for the Russian people, or some Russian people rather, to start realizing that something is wrong here. Now, the famous Russian dissident, Natan Sharansky, made a very clear distinction between free societies and fear societies with Russia certainly being considered a fear society, one in which the people would be afraid to speak openly. And so with that in mind, what do you think about how we essentially get the people of Russia to recognize the evil that's being done in their name by the government without causing an incredible degree of suffering among the general public who aren't directly connected to Putin's war? How do you square that circle? Well, I worry about this a lot because I remember the heroic tiny number of Soviet dissidents. I remember the Soviet-led invasion of Czechoslovakia, and I revere the memory of that tiny number of Russians who demonstrated at such enormous personal risk against that invasion on Red Square and paid a horrible price for it. And I also feel we won't win this in the end without changing Russia. If Putin wants to depict Russia as a besieged fortress where you have to sacrifice everything to defend the motherland. And if we do things that make that easier for him, question hard if that's the right thing to do. But on the other hand, I think the absolute humanitarian priority is Ukraine and Ukrainians. I feel sorry for Russians who've left Russia in a hurry and now sort of trying to find somewhere to live in Istanbul. But they are incredibly lucky compared with the Ukrainians who have had their homes blown apart around their ears. And we can't do everything. And I also think there's a slice of Russians abroad who seem to have taken their old Russian imperialist habits with them. There's a very interesting clip on the Twitter going around today of a Russian woman in a supermarket in Tbilisi who's asked politely to speak either English or Georgian because the cashier doesn't speak Russian. And she explodes and starts hollering glory to Russia in outrage. This idea that in a country that many Russians regard basically as a large restaurant, they should be expected to do anything differently from at home. So we've got a psychological mountain to climb when it comes, even with the Russians who are anti-Putin, leaving aside the ones who are pro-Putin. And it's going to be tricky. I think we need to resurrect the dark arts that we had during the old Cold War during the Second World War. We were actually quite good at this stuff. Um, we've allowed our faculties to shrivel shamelessly. And I think we've got to be realistic. We are not going to be able to persuade Russians that they've got it wrong. Putin's actually a thug and a crook and has done terrible things to their country. We're not going to be persuading that in the short term, maybe after a catastrophic military defeat, maybe after some huge political upheaval. 
something on the scale of the collapse of 1991, maybe ordinary Russians are going to wake up. But we can't bet on it. And in the meantime, what we can do is help Ukraine, and that has to be our top priority. Can you say more about the uh, dark arts that you referenced from the Cold War and World War II? Well, for example, there was a wonderful British journalist called Sefton Delma, who was put in charge of broadcasting propaganda to the Nazis in German, pretending to be an official German Nazi radio station. And this was brilliant. It was a mixture of sort of bombastic stuff in favor of the war effort and so on. But roughly 5% of it was pure disinformation. It was aimed at the soldiers mainly, and it was always slightly complaining about the corruption within the Nazi party and that this was the soldiers were suffering while the Nazis were living high on the hog back home. But it was so authentic and so and many Germans listened to it all through its life, because even within the Nazi system, there was a small corridor of opinion. There would be some room for people to vent complaints. It didn't seem completely implausible. And so we were really good at this. We played all sorts of tricks and everything. We were pumping forged ration books into Nazi Germany to discredit the rationing. There were an amazing number of things that we did in what was called political warfare. And we've let Russia get on the front foot on this. Russia does stuff to us with its hacking and leaking attacks on the American political system, with its using social media to create or accentuate polarization, exploiting all kinds of racial, religious, ethnic, geographical, cultural, political divisions. It's interesting, this hasn't worked terribly well during this war, because what Russia's done is so awful, this attempts to justify it and to paint the Ukrainians as the bad guys just bounce off. But I think we really need to get going on this. And I know people in this world who've sitting on capabilities that we've developed to push messages to Russian mobile phones, for example. But we're not doing it because our political leaders say, don't escalate, don't make things worse. And that, I'm afraid, is the familiar and depressing refrain, which has taken us to the almost catastrophic impasse that we find ourselves in. So Olga, you're an expert on disinformation. The idea that disinformation is another front in this war and one where we not only have to play defense and try to stop the spread of disinformation in the free world, but one in which we perhaps even reluctantly, may have no choice but to engage. How does that sit with you? I have to say, so I have been following Russia's disinformation for forever. And I am pleasantly surprised because Ukrainians are experts. And it literally is watching the same tactics being used, but one Russia is evil and it's disinformation and it's putting out fake news, fake videos. Ukraine, it's putting out the truth, putting out truthful videos, documenting the war crimes happening. So for the first time, again, that there's a few firsts here, I see Ukraine for now captivating the world. Russia's disinformation, even though it's beginning to come back, but it's being drowned out. Temporarily, we saw, for instance, they came out with these bio labs, which they rehashed because it's probably the fifth time that they've used this conspiracy of U.S. bio labs over the past several years. And that kind of got drowned out because it just goes to show you that if you put so much emphasis on getting the truth out, especially when it's powerful truth of what's happening on the ground in Ukraine right now, that that will overtake the disinformation. And for now, we don't know where it's going to shape, but for now, 
you see the majority of emphasis being put on Ukraine. You see the global support on Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine got attacked in 2014. Russia invaded and annexed Crimea, then moved into eastern Ukraine. Most people didn't even know there was a war, and some of them couldn't even figure out what was happening. And even the media at the beginning last year towards the end when they started reporting on this. Oh, Russia's going to invade and had to keep correcting the narrative. Oh, wait, further invade because they completely forgot that Russia already did invade. Reinvade. Yeah, exactly. So I think for now, as long as we help Ukrainians get the truth out, to get the videos out, to get the accounts out, the human stories, I mean, they're even penetrating, strangely enough, in Russia, because you have one of the older Russian media outlets, Novaya Gazeta, who is documenting, they've taken the past few weeks to document, they're not allowed to say the word war, it has to be special operation, but they're documenting like the refugees who had to leave their homes and what's happening inside of Ukraine. So they're kind of going around this law, you're not allowed to say the word war, and doing the humanitarian documentation. So I think we need to just continue focusing on helping Ukrainians and Ukrainian voices, lift them up, help them get the truth out, help them get the war crimes out so we can make sure Putin and all his bandits are held accountable. And for now, I think this is it. And then going forward, we need to put a lot more emphasis because, look, Russia's disinformation has helped kill millions from COVID because they were the primary people spreading the disinformation on COVID and online and offline with all these anti-mask movements, anti-mandate movements, anti-government movements. So we really need to get a handle on that and make sure that we put pressure on social media companies to finally put an end to this disinformation or at least like right after Russia launched a brutal assault, you saw Twitter, Facebook, and others, they had the capability. They immediately removed uh, bot and troll networks. They removed Facebook pages. They removed fake articles. They even started censoring the Russian embassy, who all day is putting out disinformation. So I think we need to focus on it. But for now, Ukraine is winning, at least for now, in this part. Well, that's at least somewhat encouraging then. So I want to broaden this conversation out a little bit now. We've spoken a lot about specifically what Putin is doing in Ukraine and, of course, how the West and Ukrainians themselves are able to effectively react. But needless to say, this is not happening in a vacuum, right? I mean, the entire kind of theme of this podcast is about the global battle between freedom and authoritarianism. So what do you think is the impact right now that this conflict is having on dictators elsewhere? Right. I mean, you have dictators in China and Venezuela far and wide looking at this. What do you think is going through their minds? Well, I think that one should be very cautious about saying there's a kind of silver lining to this because the suffering has been absolutely enormous and all the more tragic for being unnecessary. But I do think that there's a whiff of 1989 again about this. I think that Volodymyr Zelensky has become, in effect, the kind of leader of the free world. He's articulating Western ideas from a country that the West never regarded as part of the West. 
and he's bridging the culture wars extraordinarily. He's something that you can support if you're a strong, patriotic, conservative nationalist or if you're a left-wing anti-imperialist. You're both on the same side. It all fits together in the Ukrainian context. And it's magnificent. Some of his speeches have been better than others, but I think he's, as a professional communicator, he's perhaps the most able figure we've seen in public life, I would say, for decades. And he's even Václav Havel, who I was friends with and who I revered, was in a way kind of an anti star um, because he rather would ostentatiously not go along with the kind of conventions of international television media appearances. One would almost have to go back to Ronald Reagan for someone who seems so completely comfortable in communicating and has such simple, powerful messages. And I think that's really woken things up. We see Europe rejuvenated. We see all sorts of old animosities put on one side in highly polarized countries such as Poland, as people get on with the really serious stuff of helping the Ukrainians, refugees, and helping Ukraine defend itself. So I think we may be in a kind of moment where the global democratic recession in democracy starts bouncing back and people start saying, gosh, these ideas really are worth dying for. Freedom doesn't come free, but that makes it all the more precious. So. You noted that this could almost be seen as a silver lining, as as really horrible as it is to say something like that, given the sheer terror of what's happening in Ukraine. But with that in mind, clearly this is a unique moment. And potentially, I think this could be an inflection point in which the free world finally recognizes that it isn't a fight, whether it wants to be or not, with the authoritarian world. And that in order to win, it must first decide to fight. So what do you believe that the free world can do now, not just in this moment, but rather in the coming months and perhaps years to leverage this newfound unity and to start pushing back against what Freedom House has, I think, quite powerfully demonstrated has been kind of a 15-year trend of democratic backsliding? I think I agree with Edward. I think we are at this point where we finally have a way to move forward. I do worry with some of the decisions being made because, for instance, in order to stop Putin, President Biden went to Venezuela. I don't think you can go from one dictator to another dictator in order to solve the problem. I think right now, finally, with all the anti-corruption measures being taken, we are at a point that we can have the potential to clean everything out, or at least a good majority of it, and then move forward on a cleaner slate and a more transparent slate. Because, I mean, we need to have new laws enacted. In U.S., you can buy, which all the oligarchs do, you can buy real estate millions of dollars through shell companies to the point that no one will even be able to find out who the owner is. So we are at a point that we can even, for the kleptocracy part, design laws and put things into place so we don't get to this point again where everyone is so dependent and everyone is so busy profiting off of this corruption to the point that they won't respond properly when need be. And we've seen it over and over again because people ask, oh, so what's the big deal if oligarchs put money, for instance, in U.S. or in London grad? You see, they invest the money here and then 
when Putin commits an atrocity, whether it be an attempted assassination of Navalny or an assassination or an invasion, you have the lobbyists and lawyers who are quickly fighting lawmakers, lining some of their pockets in order to water down the sanctions. And then a lot of the reason we are here is because over the past 20 years, Putin has committed some of the most unthinkable atrocities. And by the time the West went to deal with it, they had this sanctions package and measures. And then after all the lawyers and lobbyists got involved, it was pretty much insignificant and sanctioned some officials inside of Russia that don't even leave Russia. So I think this is where we can have a lot of room for improvement. And we should not go to other dictators right now to help us resolve the problem with Putin, because we should have enough strength between all the free countries to come together and to use all the solutions we have, the innovations of each country to move forward, whether it's helping Germany find new energy supply or helping another country fight disinformation or whatever it is. We have enough resources between the free world to work together without going to Venezuela or China for help. And I think I would just want to underline that. We are so much bigger and richer than Russia. You know, the, the free world, broadly defined, it's a billion people. It's a 40 trillion GDP. We are only losing this because of our inability to coordinate and decide and see ahead. Almost all the weaknesses are self-inflicted. Nobody made us do this. We did this to ourselves. And what's so outrageous is that the price of this is being paid not just by some sleepless nights but for decision makers in Western capitals, but in tens of thousands of people killed or maimed and millions of people having their lives ruined in Ukraine. And these are the people, the East Europeans, who warned us in the West again and again and again about what was happening in Russia and we didn't listen. And with that, thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter Is Here, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative on Substack. Now, at RDI, we're committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and share the episode with a friend. Or become an RDI subscriber at renewdemocracy.substack.com or rdi.org. Thank you again for listening and supporting our continued fight for democracy.